1: This is John from Galway in the west of Ireland, and this is Dame Baptiste Questions Everything. My question today is if you can start one conspiracy theory, what conspiracy theory would you start? Here is the rest of the show, and remember, question everything.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Dame Baptiste Question Everything, a podcast for myself, comedian, writer, and occasional actor Dame Baptiste, my producer friend Howard Cohen, a.k.a. Dehiza. Hello, and a mix of very special guests pose the questions that need to be asked, and we are talking everything from. We are talking
0: everything from John from Galway in Ireland's question: uh, What conspiracy theory would you like to start, Dane? Have you got? Have you got any conspiracy theories you'd like to start?
2: Um, um, that. Uh, As we were saying before, I believe that the Pentagon uh, had been infiltrated by extraterrestrials who then divested money from uh, the Pentagon during 9-11 in order to begin their takeover by positioning their alien puppets in different positions within the US government in order to effectively begin a takeover of the planet.
0: Nice, nice.
2: That's a good answer for John. And the other one is that hair, hair that is waxed off of vaginas is recycled into fake eyebrows or fake eyelashes.
0: Because
2: <laughs> where else is the hair going to go? That's that's my question. So what about yourself, Howard? Can you...
0: Um, I, I, I'd like to suggest that um, Alex Ferguson is still running Manchester United behind the scenes uh, I often <laughs> now he's wearing a mask at the games I think that's even more likely but um, but you know it's a good question John and listeners tell us your conspiracy theories you'd like to start and um, hey we ask and answer all the questions on this show don't we Dane
2: absolutely we answer and ask and answer all the questions no question is too big small or stupid and if you like the show please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify and you never miss an episode or subscribe to us on Cast the world's largest podcast network where you get to hear all of our amazing very special guests with that being said on today's show is an award-winning comedian writer and television host he's one of the most respected and best loved comedians working in britain today he's also one of the biggest live acts in comedy with eight live show releases to his name selling over 1.2 million copies to date and a stand-up special deal with netflix his television credits include hosting over 20 series of 8 out of 10 cats as well as 18 series of spin-off 8 out of 10 cats does countdown over 15 years he's been the host of channel 4's big Factor. Quiz of the year and has gone on to host Rose Battle UK and Your Face or Mine on Comedy Central. So there's many, many more amazing, successful vehicles. It is said that one in five people in the UK own his DVD. It is the incomparable and almighty Jimmy Carr. I mean, I mean, I, listen, I was
1: half—you're halfway through that. I was impressed. I thought this is a really good guest on this day.
0: It's no, not
1: bad. You know what? It's that that whole credit reel is testament to the fact that perseverance is a great substitute for talent.
2: Just, <laughs> Absolutely. Just stick around long enough, you'll be fine. Absolutely. Hard I mean, work, eh? That's it. Party, you know, you got to work like you're the worst guy. You have to approach women you are attracted to like you're the ugliest man in the room. Perseverance and dedication. I completely agree.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. I'm all about that life. Um, I like the bit about conspiracy theories. What would you like to start as a conspiracy theory?
0: Because mm.
1: I've been like fascinated the last little while about like QAnon and these the crazy people... That will sort of believe. I think that it's that like classic of, I think it's a G.K. Chesterton line if you don't believe in anything, you'll believe in anything. <laughs>
2: yeah. I think, yeah. Little...
1: I think what that thing is like, uh, um, uh, of is like a, uh, like a secularization of, uh, America. And America's mm-hmm. not a secular nation. Yeah. It's sort of ostensibly Christian, but that Christianity is no longer a religion. It's a self help group because. <laughs> Yeah, well, you think about it, though, uh, religion's about the next life. And all religion in America is about what could you do for me now? Absolutely. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? And there's this big gulf, this gap, and these QAnon craziness goes in there.
2: Absolutely. Mm. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess a prevalent religion really would be uh, capitalism, being that, like any religion, uh, it requires uh, you to suspend logical belief in that, you know, you could live to be 100 years old and still not be ever become a billionaire, but people still need to believe in the American dream. And the dream, you know, is obviously about detaching from reality. It's, um, it's pretty interesting to see how America's become very secular, I suppose, or has a belief system which is not rooted in Abrahamic religion. I think it's, they say, one in eight Americans actually believe that uh, they've seen a real-life angel with wings. Um, so yeah, <laughs> people, people are very suggestible.
1: It's almost like the greatest trick, Dane, is that thing of, like, they're not religious, but they think they are. Yeah. That's like, for me, the, the sleight of hand involved in... No, 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 we did, no, we're just saying, Lord, do not you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? That, that materialism has become like,
2: baked into the Yeah, original. and that's it, and, and that but therefore makes it justified, and it's, uh, that's a great way of putting it, because um, it's also, it's a very, very effective form of pop psychology, in that if you are able to, I guess, use Jesus or God as a straw man, then you're able to, like, you know, you can kind of leave it yourself only accountability. accountability. Um, did you watch
1: Going Clear?
2: the documentary. Oh, amazing. Amazing. I remember
1: watching that. And and like the first 20 minutes I went, why am I not a Scientologist? (laughs) Yeah. I agree with all of this. Yeah. It was so well put together because it's like, it made so much up. It was basically, um, L. Ron Hubbard's thing was, it was all about like self-help and self-actualization and therapy language. And then it got crazy, but they, they, they drip fed the craziness. It was like Game of Thrones with the dragons. There's no dragons in episode one. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not watching a show about dragons. I'm a grown man. They, they hold that shit back.
2: Yeah, and, that, and that's it. I mean, it, is, it's a very good, it was a very good way of, I guess, Elrond Hobbit understanding the complex of most Americans is that when, like I said, when there's that vacuum when they're not achieving the American dream, then there's always the uh, buffer of Christian belief and being able to ask God for anything. And so he was like, okay, cool. Now, to make it seem not too threatening to Abrahamic religion, how can I make a relation about science and technology? Hmm, Scientology. And I guess for most <laughs> people, most of it, they're early adopters of Scientology because like obviously a last contingent of them are aspiring actors and creatives. It's like, I guess when you look at it as terms of the uh, hierarchy of needs, the like Maslow's model, um, most people who are famous and enjoy the perks of fame have most of their normal physiological needs kind of satisfied. They're part of a particular group. They don't have to kind of want for anything. So self actualization is always a need for most other human beings as a social species. How do we imprint on each other? So when a religion comes along where you don't have to, like, you know, change your, I guess, uh, sexual proclivity or any of your desires and just have to give over money and then aspire to have the same kind of, I suppose, the same kind of dreams as any Hollywood actor or actress, it's a, it's quite an easy sell when you think about America. And... Are you aware of the round robin letters that they had?
1: no. So L. Ron Hubbard and Philip K. Dick and Isaac Isimov ooh, were in a they were sort of the equivalent now of a WhatsApp group. They would write each other letters, but like not formal, just like like notes to each other, just constantly around Robin, like chatting to each other. What's going on? They were writing fiction and they were writing. I think it was for something like a dollar a word, but like they would write sci-fi for these magazines. And it was just the opening days of sci-fi, the 19th sort of. Uh, late 40s, early 50s. And L. Ron Hubbard was part of this group with the greatest science, science fiction writers of all time. And he said in one of the letters, uh, he was complaining about how much tax he paid. Yeah. And he said, of course, the way to avoid this, the way to make real money is to start a religion. And he had this whole thing in the letter about start a religion, you don't have to pay right. tax, people will give you a huge amount of their money, they give you like tithes, we should do that, we have the imagination. And uh, And then disappeared for two years and came back and...
2: Yeah, there and, and there you go. And and really, it shows he was more of a, a religious zealot for capitalism because he got to the point, like any American, was like, I want my part of the dream as well, and how can I monetize my yeah. gift? So Hey,
1: listen, i just, you know, because he didn't want to pay much tax, obviously, I took it, I went, hang on, what?
2: <laughs> you <laughs> were like,
1: her uh, bookmark. <laughs> 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 it's fascinating, that thing of like what people will believe in the conspiracy theories. And then I was thinking about the other day, I was chatting to a friend about conspiracy theories that have delivered. And mm. the big one for me, like, in my lifetime was when I was growing up, we were we were Catholic and I was always told, like, watch out for the priests, watch out yeah. for the priests, the priests of pedophiles. And I remember really clearly when I was at university thinking, like, oh, my mum, she was always warning me about the, pre-. ah, she was crazy. The crazy old lady. <laughs> and yeah. And then... Wow, a 100% right. Yeah. It literally, it shouldn't even be called a church. It should be called, it's like a, it's a, a club. Fire, or, or a, a ring.
2: It's a yeah, ring, ra- yeah.
1: But literally, I mean, when you think of how they game the system, how could we give the kids wine, but no one's going to get
2: suspicious? Terry, I've had an idea. so true. <laughs> it's so true. So many other claret-hue drinks that could be the body of Christ and much more resemble blood when you think about it, Jimmy. It's been so clear. Also, bread we all know this slows you down while you digest it. Very hard to run as a kid when you've got a stomach full of gluten. So clear. Now when you think about it. So yeah. clear. Lovely.
1: Oh, I, I, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm chatting about conspiracy theories and channel. It's very nice to be here, by the way. Thank you so much no, for having problem. me on. I saw uh, the uh, oh, Yes, thank you. Three um, really new show. If you haven't seen it, listeners, uh, if you don't have access to BBC Three, uh, just, you know, rip that shit off the internet. Don't worry about it. Um, it's fantastic. I thought really,
2: really funny. Some great really jokes in it. Uh, no, very much enjoyed it, and I'm glad you enjoyed it as well. It's always good to have the support of the peers. Um, as always, and it's always my first uh, barometer is uh, looking at my peers and stuff, and if they enjoy what we're doing. Because I know comedians tend to watch uh, comedy formats, not necessarily just for the laughs, but a lot for execution format. And so, uh, yeah, no, feedback's been generally good. So, don't you
1: think like some people miss the point of being a comic? Like you get into it because you're super into comedy, and then some people just have this thing where they go, oh, "I'm now a professional." I don't go and see comedy anymore. You go, oh, okay. are you Absolutely. crazy? Do you know
0: what? I'll always remember. I always remember Jimmy. Um, me, be, I, I produced a show at the Edinburgh Festival about s- six years ago, uh, fronted by the Reverend Obadiah Steppenwolf the Third. Jim, I mean, what an act! <laughs> he, and, and honestly, I, we had a show. There was about twenty people there and it was a good show that day but i was five of them. And, and jimmy's laugh honestly jimmy at the back just laughing his ass off at, at, at these yeah. jokes was just amazing i think
1: he's, he's an amazing but it's a really interesting thing actually when you get like you know comedy's a strange business because it's not always the the um, i mean i always think it's like more of a meritocracy than the rest of show business absolutely people that are really good It like not necessarily timing wise, not how quickly it happens, but it tends to happen for me.
2: Absolutely. No, I completely agree. I mean, that's one.
1: Some people really have to wait a long time. Someone like Mark Maron didn't make any sense when he was in his thirties. Yeah. As soon as he hit 50, (laughs) because there was always
2: something of the get off my land about Mark Maron. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And 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 it's almost as if his body and time had to catch up with his consciousness. Um yeah, I and mean, no. the, the, the good will
1: out in comedy. But I do I do think sometimes there's there's some great Edinburgh acts like the Reverend Abinas Emma the third. You go, wow, he was in live floor show on the BBC yeah. and he he like he had a bit of a moment mm. and then kind of didn't want it. Yeah.
2: Which is yeah. fine. If, I mean if if he, if he didn't want it, I, I think sometimes it's good to put, get back to that quantum where you think about why you're doing it. And it's like I said, some people didn't become more because they're involved in comedy and they embrace more of the business than the show so they view other comics more as threats than rather enjoying what they're doing themselves and forgetting that there is a human part of you that requires life experience and interaction and engagement to feed into what you're doing i think
1: that's the other great thing though about being a comic i think is like it's why i find it slightly bizarre when people really want to be actors and they get into comedy as a way to get acting i think acting is such a it's you're waiting for someone to bring you flowers yeah <laughs> you're planting your own garden so it's that thing where i'm not in competition with anyone because no one else is writing the same stuff as me no one else is 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 thinking about it in that way
0: so it's like, nobody else is uh, nobody else is jimmy Carr, that's for sure
2: yeah or, or anybody and, and that's supposed to be the payoff is that you know and that's the payoff of, i could yeah. find
0: you, you know i would
2: <laughs> i feel i i feel like the whole howard I, I i jimmy i could see jimmy Carr impersonators in about 10 or so years there's like there's there's Japanese guys in like nice fitted suits and stuff and guys I
1: did I did I I took it as a great compliment but I did very early on in my career I I released my first dvd and uh, I was really proud of it and people were there was a guy in Holland doing it live nice he was touring with it he Mm. basically was touring and it was he did like the first 45 minutes of my dvd was his show and you went (laughs) "Okay, (laughs) Okay, okay all
2: right
1: Tribute act. I, I just tribute act. My phone had like, like, should we sue? And I went, Ah, oh, don't be, a, don't be a dick. Uh, let's just put a touring of Holland,
2: this is it? Yeah, he <laughs> and he's he's just he's, yeah. essentially he's a, he's he's just done a bit of marketing on your behalf. The most uh, sincerest, more order. flattery. Yes, yeah. it's great, man. It's great, and I can definitely yeah. see
1: it. The thing that comedy does, I think, better than any other format is sort of speak truth to power, but also it kind of wins people over. Mm. There's a, there's a thing of like. I'm just writing a thing at the moment. I was writing about like uh, Hitler sh- shutting down the cabarets, mm-hmm. and the reason Hitler shut down the cabarets is not because they were a threat, but like protest singers don't don't really win people over. They're preaching to the yeah, choir, exactly right. But the comedy, when you make people laugh, there's like a connection that comes with that. There's a weird thing where people seem to be able, in their head, somehow, to be fans of sports. And racist at the
2: same time, yeah. which is exactly. yeah, exactly. And music, music too. I think a lot of people that would say, you know, does everything have to be about race. These are the people who like, when you, when you do probe them, they're like, Oh, I've got all the Bob Marley collection. I love Motown. So they.
1: But there's something about comedy. There's something about making someone laugh is, uh, I love that. It's an old quote, but, um, uh, laughter is the shortest distance between two. people. Absolutely. If you make another human being laugh, that's like,
2: Yeah, exactly. It's it's the best way of rapport building. It's anytime you have public address or discourse, it's always preceded by jokes. Anytime someone takes a lectern or a pulpit, they always try and use comedy in order to make that audience more receptive to their narrative. So, yeah. Well,
1: that's kind of what I feel like with your act. I feel like the kind of thing that you do on stage, the idea that you go, right, I'm taking a complex idea first that's quite, they're not palatable. They're like complex, difficult things to discuss. And you go, yes, but people aren't going to read. Guns, Germs, no. and Steel. It's
0: oh, you know, by the way, pages. how
2: serendipitous it is. This out today. Oh, I mean, it's unbelievable, oh, man! James held mind. up
0: the book. Uh. <laughs> so good, um,
1: but that thing of like those, that that book. I mean, it's basically the same as uh, the God Show. It's yeah. the same beats mm. of going. Isn't it interesting how we got here? It didn't, and it's, it wasn't preordained. It, like, it. It's
2: a is, weird way been, and it means. And by that same token, it, it, the merit of knowing that. These have been, you know, the machinations of human beings shows us if we engage, we can also solve the problem or address the problem uh, as well. So, I mean, yeah, that, that's definitely a big part of, yeah, my overall, I guess, creative endeavour. And, and, it's, and it's because I've, I had the privilege of the access to this information. I know that not all of my peers have had that and, or had the process of unlearning and self-discovery and research. And so...
1: Yeah. Are you able to write at the moment? Are you able to, like, plan a show or structure it? Because I find it quite difficult at the moment. I'm, tr- I'm trying to write mm-hmm. a lot in lockdown but without an audience being there you sort of feel like although comedy on one level is a monologue Mm. on another level you go well not really because you need that back and forth with the audience you need to sort of see where the beats
2: laughter. monologues monologues also require a certain level of energy as well because like you know the intensity of a point you're trying to reach with address normally is going to be this is why we say you know the more energy you give the comedians the more they give you back because once you're receiving that energy and you know where it's receptive and you can read it it yeah, allows you to, you know, change emphasis in your work. So I'm writing, it's all very piece meal. So it's ideas or malapropisms, I just jot them down and stuff. And I might even show myself, this is where you segue from, uh, from maybe a previous joke or a set of refining it. But yeah, I, I think the biggest challenge now will be, especially with the chocolate chip and revamping that, especially given how 2020 kind of unfolded and everything happened in America now, it's going to have to be a lot more specific. But it's it's a welcome challenge. But like I said, I think the biggest challenge really is, and what is always required for artistic expression is that audience. So that's probably the biggest challenge. But yeah, I was still writing and stuff. And yeah, it's always, it's always nice to keep sharp. And I, and I think as in a short space of time now, as the job description is now beginning to uh, change into content creator because of the state that we're in now, it's just really learning how to kind of apply that and using different tools because in the same way that, you know, historically now you can just do a, a topical punchline that just is, is just Twitter suitable. Now it's going to be that stuff that's suitable to be demonstrated with, you know, working out how can this joke be communicated more effectively in the form of a meme. And just understanding the ways in which people consume media now. So that's part of the challenge. But so far mm-hmm. as the musings and material, like, yeah, at the moment, my cup run over. Mm-hmm. So
1: I do think there's something about, I mean, I, I, I hear you, and clearly I'm going to sound like a dinosaur here. But for me, there's something about being in the room yeah. with others that's yeah. very special. Like Can't that, replace I've done some that. On laughter. And there's, there's an idea that you're 30 times more likely to laugh when you're with other Ooh. humans than when you're on your own. So watching something on an iPad or, or looking at it on your phone and, and the way that the world is going as well, we're looking at screens all day, every day now. And the idea that that live coming together of a of a tribe and you've got any kind of thing where you've got any kind of gig where you've got like a thousand or 300 or 50 people in a room, it feels like you're in a little gang just for that night. And it feels so special. I mean, I really, I, su- I suppose I hadn't given it enough thought the last 20 years and then suddenly it's gone and you go, Oh, that's the thing. I yeah,
2: mm-hmm. I think I think that's a lot. For, that's the case for a lot of comedians, and I think a lot. I mean, I think a lot of people from my generation of comics probably didn't realise just how crucial and important it is. And a lot of the time, you even hear people being like, "I, I can't be off to do the circuit anymore." And for me, it's like the, the the circuit is the equivalent of like a footballer, you know, being able to leave the politics and all of the obligations and just go and do jumpers and goalposts, and really just yeah, just work out your original funny bones before they're guilted with like industrial polish
1: yeah i do think there's, there's something about playing a comedy club as opposed to a you know an arts mm-hmm. festival or a show where people have come and paid to see you but like i always think i always sort of say if you see a comic take the roof off in a comedy club that's a different standard to someone in a absolutely. theater taking the
2: roof off absolutely mm. a
1: comedy club, you would think oh the guy at the o2 arena he's the best and you go no 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 that's 16,000 people that love yeah. that guy mm. He already got them. They already they they were having a great time from the time they bought their ticket. That thing of the intention. I always think like you start getting your value for money for the comedy ticket when you buy the damn yeah. thing. Because you're going we're going up with the intention of laughing. And it's all it's all about intention. And you're on stage and they're with you from the
0: from the jump. I remember watching um Mike Gunn uh at a comedy club uh absolutely destroy the place and and you know, you could tell that nobody in the audience had any idea who the guy was. but And that was part of the reason he blew them away. Because he was...
1: His Edinburgh show about his uh, uh, heroin addiction. I, I mean, again, it was one of these shows where there was about 10 people in the room, but amazing.
2: Absolutely, Properly- yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, guys like, yeah, definitely guys uh, of that nature. Um, who I, and, and him, guys like himself and Sean Mayo... Who I kind of and Boothby Griffith, uh, I kind of work with, and I catch at the comedy store every now and again. I feel like they definitely kind of keep me on my toes.
1: I really like that thing though of going. It sort of doesn't matter where you get to in comedy. It's like the job is yes. sort of the same. What are you doing? I'm going out and yeah. doing a gig. I'm going to try a couple of new lines tonight. I'm going to like that thing of going. There's a big. I'm, I'm writing this thing at the moment and sort of thinking about the past a lot. Like when I became a success, and there's there's two things going on. There's one is when people would have thought, oh, he's doing all right. And then the other thing is when you think I'm doing all right. And for me it was, I don't know about you, but for me it was the comedy store. It was the like, oh, I'm getting paid that much money. I'm literally living off my wits. I can this is a life now. I can sustain it's not a hobby. This is my job. That was the big
2: transition. I think that's the same, yeah. I think I think it's exactly the same for me. It's and it's always it's always the the, the most uh, grounding uh, memory I have is this, I remember the first time I did a gig and I was paid 50 pounds and I was like, this is, this is amazing. This is, what was, what was the gig? It was in, it was in Corkswine bar off Bini, in Binney street, just off Oxford street. And uh, Kojo, <laughs> who did Britain's Got Talent last year was running this gig. And I think somebody dropped out. So it's like, do you 50, it'd be 50 pounds. And to me, it was like, I felt, I was like, this must be how drug dealers feel. Like I said, living by your wits, making money hand over fist, for doing something you enjoy is like,
1: you know, that thing in fact, they say gamblers always say money won. I think there's nothing sweeter than money you got from I just made those people laugh. That was it.
2: Yeah, I would have done it for free. Well, a clean, a clean, clean conscience to be. You know, I, as as I say, there's there's a real there's a uh, I mean there's a real uh, intrinsic reward where I'm like, when people are, like, what do you do for a living? I'm like, just make people laugh and smile, and uh, yeah. I, I think that was the first time I got a dragon. I think people like freebase for the first time and that one tier comes down there. And I was like, I've been chasing that ever since. This <laughs> is that feeling of just being remunerated. The, and I've been able to tell my family that.
0: Isn't there a famous story about you when you were starting your career, Jimmy, uh, getting a map of the UK and putting a mark in it wherever you played a gig? Or is that completely... Uh... No, that's, that's true. I did, I did a thing while we did a tour and we did like 30 dates and then I just got a map
1: and went, well, we do everywhere yeah nice. like literally phoning hannah driving her crazy going yeah scum thought though has it got a theater i don't know what. <laughs> find out like and that. then i would always get i'd get everyone else's flyer on the theaters that i was going all the art centers and just and look at the like i remember looking at i Carl did Murray's.
2: that <laughs> that's cool i did and that I'd
1: go, well, hang on I, I the truck where's the truck in hull i've never never heard of it never played it what's the junction in cambridge where is it all of these things and just going through and going, Well, what we do all of them I'm like je- desperately wanting to do more, more, more.
2: No, I was exactly the same. I mean, I probably even have a copies of. You know, Ka- oh, I was did, a, doing tour support for Catherine Ryan, so I have Catherine's all of her tour posters and dates, and her and Ramesh and stuff as well. And I guess it's because I've I've been directly with them in a the journey as well. Where I remember seeing Ramesh at the back of like a um, uh, cafe bar off of the Royal Mile, and I remember seeing it obviously being tour support with Catherine. So it's just seeing how they continue to build and how that grows. So. It's always nice to have like a little blueprint to follow. So I remember having that part as well. It's like, let's just go everywhere. And then as soon as I became aware of like, Australia have their own festivals too? Well.
1: Wow. On the last one I did, I think about 40 countries on the last one. Nice. I sort of played everywhere. And I love that thing of like going, oh, you can go to Iceland. And I mean, some of these places well, like Denmark and, and Norway, I'd say it's, I mean, the audiences, you wouldn't know that English isn't
0: their first language. It's just, it's.
2: Absolutely. So. With that being said, it's been some excellent preambling, Howard. Um, I was going to
0: say we might we might have run out of time to do the questions, Dane, as we normally would, because it's been the
2: best. I just to the answer super quick, Don't even Morning, and, and also, and also <laughs> we can work this out. We we will make a Jimmy Carr exception, of course. So yeah, as our esteemed guest, we invite you to ask uh, the first question, any question you would like, which we would discuss for fifteen minutes and some change. Howard will do the same. We'll discuss, and then Latherins repeat. I will ask a question, and then we're all done. And you can tell uh, all of our listeners where they can find you if they don't know already. If they've been living under a rock or recently awakened from a coma, please. Any question you would like? What well, can I? I mean, I'm, I'm. I. It might be boring for you to talk about. I don't. Know Not at all. Anything before, you though. like. Anything you like.
1: I, I'd be very interested to know what the what you're working on at the moment in terms of like the early structure of the next show. Hmm. Good. Because for me, that's the structure of it is really interesting in the kind of, not the the jokes specifically, but the, what you'd like to talk about at the moment.
2: Good question. Good question. I, um, I, I I do try. And I guess my writing process always is, is that when I grew up comedy, stand-up comedy, like I said, for a generation, wasn't really something people, uh, saw as a path, even though sports and entertainment were normally the Holy grail for social mobility and for like a viable successful career or a lucrative one. Um, but I guess I try to uh, kind of approach comedy with the same sensibility as a musician. So I try and write like, you know, enough, this is enough for like a three to five minute song or this is enough. This is something that might be album worthy. It's a bit more, has a lot, bit more loquacious, a bit more depth, a bit more verbose. Um, and then all of my shows are just kind of be like snapshots of where I am socially or where I see the world is. So I think the next show definitely will be about talking about the new way I, I believe society has been drafted because I guess it's always been a part of my narrative anywhere where I've had some level of cynicism in terms of like ideology, whether it's religion, uh, nationalism, um, gender identity, and I guess a lot of the conversations that are being had now and, uh, and have intensified over the last year or so have very much validated my work, and I feel like it's definitely contributed to my profile, kind of having a upswing over the last year. So the next show, I think I I just want to, I think I, I definitely want to talk find a way, I guess the real challenge now is finding a way of talking about my nuanced experience of the last year. I think that's what's definitely changed for comedians now is that we've all, and people in general, have all had a very shared experience. So when we're thinking about like crafting jokes now, observations, we're going to have to do it from a perspective, which is not the same as everybody else, because I guess everyone's kind of had it, but I guess it'd be our interpretation. And I, and I want to take into account the fact that people have had a lot more time now to indulge a lot more narratives, not just from comedians or influencers, but everyone else is communicating in the same way we normally do now. Um, more recently, you know, it's the playing field has become very level and almost everyone now potentially has the opportunity to be an artist in that the one thing that used to distinguish us, which was actually performing comedy live, we can't do it anymore. So it means all of the armchair comics or the Twitter comics, we're almost level, uh, level with them at the moment. So I guess it'd be discussing that. But I think one of the big things I want to cover is the human consciousness um, cohabiting existence with artificial intelligence. So I think that social media and uh, the way the collective consciousness has changed as a result of its exposure to an interaction with social media has just created a whole new world, whole new narratives. We've had so much new uh, vocabulary being introduced into the human vernacular. And yeah, I just, it's kind of just like, I suppose I want to really just opine on the, on the brave new world we're living in
1: firstly i love the music analogy i'm not really kind of aware of that as an as a i've never heard that before and i love the idea of going this is my album that's it's like a postcard from now this thing of like going right this is this is where i'm at and i'll look back at it and see whether that in 10 years time or whatever but that's what's that's what's up with me that's that's really interesting.
2: Yeah, I think. I think, because I think observations should be dynamic as well. I think as comics, one of the large parts of the issues we've had and when people have had discussions over the last couple of years regarding censorship and political correctness, I think a lot of comics really, it's more about your rigidity of your views that have kind of held you back. Like comics, and one of the lessons I was given when I began to, uh, uh, you know, working as a comedian was the first thing you have to be able to do is laugh at yourself. And if you can't look at yourself and find all of the points of ridicule, then it's very hard for you to do this job because you better find out before the audience does. Because if you get heckled or they get you and someone makes an observation about yourself that you never saw, then the power dynamic in the room can change very quickly.
1: I think that's one of, one of the, like, the things that comedians do incredibly well, one of the
2: superpowers is acceptance. Ex- yeah, precisely.
1: The acceptance of how the world is and how we are in the world before you even start is is great and it's it's you know you can't get anywhere if you don't know where you're starting
0: with that in mind uh, uh, how do you how do you guys jimmy how do you how are you going to treat covid once it's over in com- in your comedy are you going to ignore it or going to f- try know, and I'll, I'll probably do uh, 15 minutes
1: of one-liners about it i mean you know my thing as well is i often think like there's a real danger with twitter because um like in in spaces and there's quite a lot of spaces now if you think about it where jokes and opinion are like people people do jokes on twitter and twitter really is a medium for Mm -hmm. opinion it's about it's not about fact it's about opinion and you go that's the opinion space so i did lots of jokes in it early on and now i don't bother because you go no it's just for that's for people's opinion that's where opinion lives and i think that thing about going cutting your cloth and going i like doing my jokes to a paying audience partly because i like the money but partly because you kind of, you go, you've got to buy into this. This is my Mm -hmm. worldview. And it might be upsetting to you. It might not be, but I'm trying to make you laugh here. So it's, it's, it's quite a different sort of stance, but I'm really interested in yours and in changing mine slightly of going from just trying to entertain and make you laugh to going, look, this is what I think about the world.
2: But that's where the entertainment comes from, comes from for me is that it's a, I think you have to approach your, the phenomenon you're observing with a a sort of sense of wonder. So On the one hand, for me, like, you know, some people might describe my narrative as being quite liberal. Um, But yeah, it it stems from a lot of curiosity. I just think you always have to kind of be open. Um, No, There's there's no really any new idea under the sun. And I think the only way you're going to be able to distinguish yourself from your peers is if you are, you know, if I want, because I want to entertain an audience and I want them to indulge what I'm saying. I have to be able to indulge all of the phenomena I'm commenting on in order for it to work. So when, you know, so for example, when people are introducing new pronouns as a result of like, you know, having narratives from the non-binary or transgender community. Like some people might, oh, how, it sounds ridiculous. Is it going to get any worse? You should really be excited about the prospect that it might.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass.
2: It, as, as, as nihilistic as that kind of sounds, it's like, I, I want to see where everything goes. Like, I am I think philosophically, I'm not supposed to take it all seriously anyway. So
1: I like that thing as well of going, I think people would, like, if they were if they were categorising you and stereotyping and putting you in a box, they'd go, yeah, yeah he's liberal. He's liberal, pretty woke, great. But actually, that thing of going, you can take people to very interesting places from there. You can take them with you. I think it's interesting when someone says something that you're kind of not expecting and you go, oh, that's kind of, it's like, it, uh, hear me out on this. I always think that, um, I was thinking with, uh, with Chris Rock's routines, they often start with a statement that is diametrically yeah. opposed to what the audience want to hear. And he says something and you go, yeah. the fuck? And then he, he, and the way that he,
2: he'll often state it like... Yeah, and go back to it, yeah, and return to that point. I still
0: can't believe the whole moment in the Chappelle show where he talks about Macaulay Culkin and Michael Jackson. That was one of the most shocking bits of material. Uh, that 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 was, I felt like when he did it, it was just purely designed to piss a load of people off. Really, wasn't it? So it Maybe uh, to piss some
2: people off, but at the same time, uh, a, as like I said, as a comedian, if you are taking a walk within your own consciousness, like there is and there's that empathy, isn't it? It's like as 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 shocking as it sounds. If there is a, as we're aware, there is a culture of paedophilia, then it would stand to reason that they would people within that culture who fetishize children would think that way about one of the most significant child stars. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's it's more about if you're, and I think what Dave Schroer does with those things is that, I mean, he's not being graphic. He's not, he's not justifying or validating. He's not really talking about any, any people. He's from the perspective of a child molester, but it's, that's what comedy always works is like the same thing with Jimmy as well, is that it's, it's more about you bring people to the precipice of the cliff. That's what we're touring is that we're bringing people to the precipice of the cliff, to the entrance to the door, to the darker recesses of their minds, and it's their choice whether they choose to open the door, or jump off the cliff. Now, if they break an ankle or they feel that their morals are compromised as a result of that jump, then that's kind of up to them. But, you know, I will. I guess when I was first mentored about the craft of comedy, it's it about emulating conversation. And, you know, in conversation, you may kind of say a faux pas, but you're always open to try and, you know, either try and articulate that point in a better way or you're like, well, that didn't land, fine. I'll go, we'll, we'll take it somewhere else.
1: It is that thing, though, where... I, You know, I often sort of say uh, offences is, is not given but taken.
2: Yeah.
1: Like, because, you know, there's a lovely quote by a French comedian, you can laugh about anything but not with anyone.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Good point. I
1: think part of that journey as well, a part of the kind of where you are in your career as well, you find your audience. And I think there's a level of trust there where I can sort of talk about things that are really quite gnarly now and no one – I kind of – a, I'm grandfathered in on the offence thing. Mm-hmm. Like, no one's going to cancel me over a joke now. I might get cancelled over something else, but not a joke. And that thing of, like, you go, well, they'll come with me now. They'll go, well, as long as the- I trust him, this is going to be funny enough to warrant that. Great. Uh, and, and, you know, they're going to trust you to say something interesting.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think another, and that's another part of the art form, which I think a lot of people lost, is that people really take a very literal idea of the performance of standard comedy in that, I just say something I think is funny and you reciprocate by laughing. And that's not how comedy works. I think there's the confusion of telling jokes like we are performing, whether in the form of a monologue or I'm performing a piece. And so far as dramatic performance, this is more comedy than tragedy. But again, those aren't, t- those aren't binary and those aren't mutually exclusive.
1: I think it's very interesting. People have a sense of who I am sort of, and I've never spoken about it. Yeah. like comed-
2: Comedians leak. Yeah. Exactly. They de- most definitely do.
1: People really know what's a joke and what isn't. And what uh, People have got, like you get credited with not, I'm not saying that, sometimes the papers take offence and it's just because that's their job. They have to write a thing. But I think people really know, oh, he meant that. He didn't mean that. He, he, oh, that's mm. okay. So I get that he is an atheist when he jokes about that, but when he jokes about that, thing, he's just messing around. Yeah.
0: Well, and- I, I, I reckon I can speak for most of our listenership to say that they will all be looking forward to the the new shows from, both of you guys, uh, when we're allowed back out to do it, hey, it's not. It feels like it's still quite a long way away. Tell you what, I do that might be an interesting
1: thing. Uh, I, I do a conference. We should invite you along to it, Dave. I would love to come. The year before, uh, and it was in Oxford. It was AI and comedy, and we we got like maybe ten of these. My friend Charlie Skelton, who's a writer, oh, cool, yeah. um, and Skelton organized this thing where it was about ten AI scientists who were sort of pretty mu- pretty the top of their game, and then a bunch of comedy writers and me. Went and, and we spoke together about AI and comedy because we talked a lot about the obviously the Turing test mm-hmm. and the idea of going can a can a computer write something that's funny enough to fool a human and of course the answer is yes and it's coming very soon mm-hmm. and then the thing that I spoke about a lot was the idea that but a, but a computer will never replace a, a human because it can't laugh yeah so. The chemical thing that happens with us when we laugh, the idea that endorphins are released and serotonin and all of these good things, basically the same things you get from sex yeah. uh, through yeah. laughter, the idea that you have all of this chemical reaction happen, a computer can't ever experience that. So there's no point to it for them.
2: Well, yeah, and, and I think that's how it's, it's very interesting that they've done it quickly. I think they can say something humorous, but it's, it's also, I guess, that's interesting as well because then it's about, and, and maybe what I want to talk about is that it, it, it's the study... Of what comedy, how comedy works. Obviously, we colloquially refer to it as the best medicine. But in a time now where we are so sensitive to the ideas of pandemic and virology, immunity, and vaccination, how does the best medicine juxtapose against these kind of ideas? Because
1: it is interesting, actually, the 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 idea of like what purpose comedy has at the moment, like the the anti-vax thing. I used to view the anti-vax thing as like being, a uh, okay, these they're, they're dummies uh, that don't really understand medicine and they're worried that kids might be autistic because of vaccinations. They're wrong about it. I'm sure they'll get the right information. Uh, and you, I kind of viewed it as a joke. I viewed conspiracy theories as a joke. And then the rise the last sort of five years where every conspiracy theory two levels down is anti-Semitism and the anti-vaxxers now, we're all going to get something because these fuckers won't take it. It's like the stakes
0: feel like they've got higher with this stuff. Well, th- that was actually going to be my question today, Jimmy. So I'm going to throw it out to you guys right now, which is, is what do we do with conspiracy theorists? They have, they have taken hold in a way that I swear when I was young wasn't the case. Jimmy, what do we do with these people? Well, here's, here's, my, here's my theory
1: on conspiracy theories. They're very simple solutions to very complex problems. The world is very nuanced and difficult. And there's the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect, mm. right? So if you ask an expert, they'll say, oh, it's very complicated. <laughs> Virology is actually very complicated. And if you ask a man in a pub, he go, it's simple. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you. Like, it's just so, you, 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 you know, you have this effect where intelligent people know that it's very complex, nuanced, not black and white. And dummies think it's fucking simple. And so, but people are drawn towards simplistic solutions because they're getting on with their lives. So, the reason for me, Trump is a walking, talking conspiracy theory. He's that strong man thing of like Putin and Trump and the Erdogan and the guy in Brazil. The idea of like, I'm a strong man and I will solve these problems. You go, great. Yeah, of course. Who wouldn't sign up to that if it were true? And when someone comes along and goes, it's really difficult and we've really got to come together on this and it's never going to be perfect. We're going to do our best. You go, it's impossible. So I can see why understanding why people go for it, because you
0: go, what, this is all fucking random? Well, it's the Michael Gove thing. The Michael Gove thing of people are tired of experts, right? People are tired of experts. Well, you're not tired when you break your fucking leg and you need to go to a hospital. You don't go t- you don't just go to the Co-op to get your leg fixed? Do you? You need
2: an expert. But, that, but that, that, that's a given, though. That that's a given. You're you're dealing with people who have enjoyed the privilege of access to these amenities as well as technology. And I believe what that's done is allowed for human beings to almost regress, almost back to like you know being single celled organisms, where we're like hypersensitive and hyper conscious of ourselves. But very, it can become very ignorant of the world around us. I think because think about conspiracy theorists. How it is the suffix of theory is where the problem is, because normally what used to happen with a theory or a hypothesis is that you have to do one of two things. The first thing you do is you have to test that theory and provide statistical or empirical evidence to support it. Or what you also have is a null hypothesis. So for those who don't a null hypothesis just means if your theory is, I believe, for example, if you add Mentos to Diet Coke, you're going to get a volcanic explosion of sorts. But your null hypothesis might be like, if this is not the correct kind of Coke or with the same components then it's not about Coke itself as a brand, but more about the chemicals. So you should always have a reason why this what doesn't make sense. And that has been absent from conspiracy theory as it exists today, is that there's no, if they are not correct, there's no acceptance as to why this may not work. So the other problem is, is that once people get right in the belief, it's like, this can be the only answer. And the reason why it's not is because they're hiding it, as opposed to, we could also just be completely wrong.
1: I think, I think we're back to Twitter. Like for me, it's about the idea that uh, opinion has become sacrosanct. Yes. The individual has become sacrosanct, right? The individual, like, it's no longer, if you look at our culture, right, it used to be about tribes, trade unions, families.
2: Collective, collective, a collective consciousness. And now you have amoebas that are all separate and nothing but consciousness.
1: What's humanity's superpower? Cooperation. Yeah. It's that our absolute fucking superpower. Name anything great done by a bunch of people. Yeah. So The idea that you go... Uh, the individual is is the most important thing. Everyone's got their opinion. And there seems to be a weird trick that's been done where you go, oh, all opinions are valid. All voices it's are godhood. valid. You it's know?
2: false godhood they've been awarded. It's because social media gives human beings godhood in that you're omnipresent because now you can see what's happening over the world all the time. Whereas before, your sphere of awareness was limited to maybe where you lived and maybe some idea about international news if it was particularly poignant. Whereas now you can see what's happening everywhere or get... These same trickle-down amount of information from everywhere. Also, you're omnipresent, so you're seeing it all the time, and an omnipotence, so you know what's happening. The problem with that being is that human beings now, like I said, they become so individual and so sensitive that it's like, everything that's happening has a direct, effect, a direct effect on me. And because of that, my response has to be direct to everything I interpret. Even And so, I guess my theory is, one of the theories I have, is that when you see how democracy plays out, like with social media... You understand why aristocracy exists because now everyone can have an opinion, and opinion is sacrosanct. It means that, I guess, before when in medieval times or when we were in the form of the peasantry, we'd have the same thing. You'd have like, a village meeting and people would say stuff. And then this is where people would have, where well, there's the village idiot or the village oaf, because we may be having a discussion as the village. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And, and then that person would be like, just block him or they couldn't or shut him up.
1: Yeah, the, there used to be consequences to having a dumb. Yeah. People go this this fucking idiot. But obviously that um the, the analogy that's often drawn is like the, the echo chamber. But it's not it's an amplifier. The problem is where conspiracies come from is it's not an echo chamber, it's an amplifier because you get positive reinforcement the more you say the crazier the thing. So someone that's a little bit right wing ends up hella right wing. Someone who's got a tendency towards uh taking religious religion seriously ends up radicalized. But people Getting yep. Radicalized in—it's not just people sort of associate radicalism or radicalization with one particular religious group, but it's happening with loads of these belief systems that have substituted the thing we said earlier—that have substituted for belief systems. So it becomes incredibly important to people as well because it's an identity level thing you're dealing with.
0: Somebody told me recently about um, uh, everyone in on the on the sh- listeners know I'm a I'm a Jew. Uh and uh you know they I, I was reading something about why di- why are Jews so involved in banking uh and I don't know if anyone knows the answer to this but it was basically I,
2: I, I happen to know the answer yes Oh really uh, I I'd, I'd, I'd heard the answer a theory regarding it how well. I, I think it's I mean
1: I think it's as close to definitive an answer because uh, Jewish people were not allowed you've been persecuted yeah. for yeah. so many hundreds of years you weren't allowed to own property in Europe Correct. for the whole of the middle ages so the reason jewellery is linked to Jewish people and banking is because Jewish people had to be traders because the only way to make money and provide for your family was to own property. Mm. And you couldn't own property. You weren't allowed. This is pre-industrial revolution. So mm. the Jewish people kind of had to move around and they had to have stuff that they could carry and leave with as soon as the Kristallnacht kicked in. Yep. So there's always been a tradition with that. But the, the idea that Jewish people are more involved in banking now than other races, creeds and colours... That kind of bullshit. I mean it's yeah. just like you always get two levels down into a conspiracy and it's the Rothschilds. And that's like yeah. the, the dog whistle for the Jews. And you
2: ah. As 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 is, as is cultural Marxism now, the new uh dog whistle for the lower echelons of society is that what they refer to as cultural Marxism is the new uh word for the Jews as well. Hmm. So um and that's the same thing I heard, yeah, didn't kind of yeah, Jews weren't allowed to work in any other industry and so
1: I went to I went to university and studied like social sciences, um, back when it was all about, uh, is it Fukuyama, wrote the end of history. And it was all mm. about, democracy's it. We're not going to get any further than this. That's the end of history. And it was so wrong, so fucking wrong. <laughs> that's how smart we were in the 90s. We were like, I think we're done. I think we've finished.
2: Yeah. I think we've done history. Let's just move on. That's it, but the people don't understand, whenever you have democracy, you're not too far is aristocracy. And that's always going to happen, whereby, you know, once people start seeing, not everyone has an idea of the facts. And this is why, you know, opinion has a status It does is because it has no factual basis for it. So, but now that opinions have been given the same credibility as what was supposed to be truths or facts is that, you know, I guess humanity previously arrived up and we were like, not everyone should be able to speak Mm. because the village of, he keeps talking with a, literally with a mouthful of cow manure. Why are we listening to him in these town meetings? Of course he thinks everyone's a witch. He's hopped up on cow shit. So at some point, Various constituencies would be like, we just need one even person who's prepared to serve the needs of everybody else to be our representative. And this is where politics uh, and aristocracy begins. Obviously with that, though, whenever you're going to have that kind of elitism, that's when conspiracy theory is also born because conspiracy theory really is defined by more than one person having private conversations or being engaged in intrigue. And it became a a negative connotation began after the JFK assassination, and that's the origin of the term, because once people began to uh, become dubious about the initial explanation or the mag- magic bullet theory, then conversations about Operation Choke and MK Ultra began. Yeah, and this is why it was referred to as conspiracy theory to kind of play it, it down.
1: It is an interesting thing of like you know the, the JFK thing. Uh, I find fascinating the idea that we don't definitively know what happened even now. It's there's a great I was just gonna recommend a documentary, as is my want. There's an Amazon documentary called Capitalism in the Twenty First Century that I just think you'd love, Dane. Because it's like it basically goes, Oh, we had the aristocracy in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, French Revolution, and now we're getting back to that. Yeah. When you look at the division in and the division in society and how unfair society is, I'm sure feeds this as well.
2: Well, I'm sure pop, and populism, I, I can definitely imagine populism. Well, now it's become a distinct ideology, but normally it's the uh, energy used to encourage revolution, like in the form of storming of the Bastille. It's normally a populist and making these promises. And uh, so like I I think it's exactly like I said, we're we're going backwards. And now that we are beginning to redraft the fabric of society, we're taking into account uh, both artificial intelligence and also, like I said, capitalism, because capitalism as a system or or a belief system is afforded to a lot more people than monarchy had been. Or you know uh you know datification had been whereby if you were a descendant of God or a or, or member of a royal family you had the entitlement to your wealth, whereas now, because the availability of wealth is, as as a narrative is more available to everybody and now people everyone can aspire to ultimate wealth, it means like it's so much more open for populism because i mean that's and I think that's always been like the appeal of like Donald Trump, for example, is that he very clearly is someone who does not in any Thought, word, or deed appear to be from in the class of uh, an elite class of people, or from the upper echelon of society. He doesn't appear to like you. Would look at Donald Trump and be like, "Well, that's that Yale swagger." That's not what people think when they see him.
1: <laughs> My favorite line on Donald Trump, I think it might be Neil Brennan, but it might I might be misquoting. He said it's a uh, he's he's a he's a poor person's idea of what a rich person's like.
0: <laughs> exactly,
2: perfect way to describe him. It's amazing. That is a perfect way to describe it, and no, and no, and no, no more. Amer- and and couldn't it be more American. Like I read Fire and Fury, where like. He eats cheeseburgers every night. And, you know, when I think about the four years of Donald Trump, there are many significant aspects of Donald Trump's presidency that people will be able to reference for generations to come. But I say this to people all the time, between Donald Trump and Tommy Morrison, like, with all of the outbursts of, well, in Tommy Morrison's case, about returning Britain to a Christian country, he's never been packed outside of a church. Like, you gay images, you will never see Tommy Morrison outside of a church. And with Donald Trump... I don't think I've ever seen him do it jogging or eating eat, 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 eat vegetables.
1: But you say that, Dane, and the thing that, the thing that springs to mind there is just the idea. I mean, I'm always thinking in terms of jokes, but just the idea Donald Trump eats. It's just all it is is burgers and Taco Bell, right? And pizzas. Yeah. Yes. Surprisingly good humoured for a man with an impacted colon. Like,
0: <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've ever been backed up, but not great for no, mood. No, it that's can't work nice out. Name. It can't be working out for him. But um... working out is
2: exactly what he needs to do. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what it is. I think I think yeah. he needs to drop a real. Real big deuce. But
0: um, con- conspiracy theories are going to be talked about in for so many so many hours this year because it's really taking over. But but just because we're, we're going to run out of time, and I, I know um, uh, Jimmy has other commitments, uh, I just want to make sure that we can get da- a chance for Dane to ask his question, which I, I know you've got ready, uh, uh, Dane.
2: Yes. Well, uh, Jimmy Carr, as I've very overtly stated a lot of the time, very much look up to your uh, the blueprint you've set in terms of and also your approach to comedy as an art form and an industry particularly because it showed business um interesting i didn't know you did study social science at you uh, uh, i studied uh, business management as well which is actually a social science in that there is it's an enormous field of study mainly about getting people to buy stuff they don't need and continue to do so uh which involved a large part of occupational psychology and stuff that's as well
1: it's buying buying shit we don't need to impress people we don't like
2: yeah and, and that's and it's understanding the mentality behind that and normally actually one of the biggest benefits is that when I discuss island geology or make observations about the society I live in, normally, uh, if I'm trying to get to the root of something or with theories, Howard, in terms of conspiracy theories I believe in, I normally tend to chase the money. So if you follow the money I, trial, you can normally find out the reason why something I, exists. I that.
1: that whole kind of Gomorrah theory of life. You want to understand the, ma- the, the mafia, follow the money. That's, follow that's, the money. And,
2: and, and, with, and that's with all cabals, all conspiracies. Uh, follow know, the, the key, money. Who stands to benefit?
1: I mean, the QAnon thing is all, it's the Christian right. So they're obviously saying satanic paedophiles. The one thing QAnon doesn't say as a conspiracy theory
2: is, are oh, there some paedophilia in the church? Which is, yeah, which is very, very strange. It's, it's I mean, so it's, strange. Looking, that's the first place you look. Yeah, or, or you'd look, you know, given the fact that you are very close to one of the biggest purveyors of pornography on the planet in the San Fernando Valley, and the fact that the most searched porn term in the United States is teen... You could probably start with a lot of you know, adult film studios.
1: Did you read that book, uh, Everybody Lies? Oh, no, I Oh, my God, it's good. So uh, just a sidebar, it's uh, just because you mentioned pornography, but it basically says uh, everybody, everybody lies, but they don't lie all the time. People tell the truth to search engines. Everyone has a confessor, everyone has a priest, and it's Google and Pornhub. So they look through globally on what are the most searched terms. And the guy basically says big data is where all the information is going to come from in the future. And he just breaks down, like, the most searched thing in India, the most searched thing in America, the top top 10 search terms in the Western world, five of them involve incest.
2: It's yeah. crazy. It's crazy. And, and Howard, that, that should go back to your point as well, because for me, the, my, my biggest conspiracy theory is that the next superpower is going to be big data. That's, that's been the whole journey of social media and algorithms have all been about trying to subvert and predict human behaviour. And that's all commented by the fact that, I used to say, Instagram is one of the tools of programming in that. That's why the suffix is gram and not graph. It's not about pictures. It's about looking at people's behaviour and how you can manipulate that. And that...
1: This book down. So... I'm going
2: to download it just now. And then in the end, in the end, now when you go into Instagram, where the like button used to be, where you would be able to build a dependency of serotonin and dopamine by getting likes. Now that's up here. And now there's a shopping bag because now you've had enough time to inculcate people with the idea of seeing images of unattainable beauty and health and wealth like you would on TV. But Instagram, there's no off to say, show you on Instagram, this is fake. This is a filter. This person doesn't look this way. So now people have now in the same way they used to be in sponsored with the TV and images they see on TV, they now do that on, on their phones with even more enthusiasm. And now the people who are in the controlling powers can be like, well, if this is what you want to be like, here's what you have to buy. And that's always been the plan. So I think big data will be the next big superpower or the next big specter to control human beings. I really
1: like to come back and do this again sometime because I love everything you say. That thing about um, advertising is that you kind of hit on there. The idea that you're, Advertising used to be about if you buy this product, it does this, and they would list what product did. And now the the sleight of hand that's been done in the advertising industry really since the 1950s in America but globally now is that they've they've conflated a feeling with a product. They've said, well, if you get this, then you'll get this. Or you want to feel safe and secure? Buy a Volvo. (laughs) You want to feel like a a big success? Uh, Buy yourself a a Rolls Royce. You want to feel like you've got a big dick? You're going to need a Porsche. That whole thing of like, conflating the feeling with the with the product and that empty feeling of consumerism of going i bought this thing but it doesn't do what they said it would do
2: hmm. that's okay do you- it could be new and improved and then it's new <laughs> so they say new and improved and then there's the paradox where it's like if it's been here before it can't be new but if it's new how have you improved on something that's only existed in this incarnation in the first place so then you are already be getting ready for what's next and so yeah, I think that's a big data to the to next big thing. Um Jimmy, th-
0: thank you so much for coming on the show today. We we're going to run out of time to get Dane's question in, but, but but the the opportunity to get you back again. I'm sure our listeners would love that.
2: I think I think we gonna a part two. Dane, what was your question? Let's It really my question was just to, uh, in a nutshell was um can a British comic crack America?
1: Yes, I think it's been done. Several times, very, very well. I mean, if you think about, it depends how you sort of define the stand-up and comedy. I think, I think to do it as a comedian, I think to crack America as a solely as a stand-up,
2: is very few people have done it. I think Jeannie Gin- Ashray is someone that's the closest, but even uh, yeah, she's probably one of the closest I've seen with the terms of doing the circuit. Even if you think yeah.
1: about, even if you think about American comics, it's normally the, the really big hitters are people that have done a movie or done TV. Yes. Yeah. Just through stand-up, it's, it's a different sort of thing. So Jeannie Ashray is doing fantastic yeah. out there. Uh, I know London Hughes has gone yeah. out there more recently. I've had some success out there. Uh, John Oliver is a force of nature. Yes. He's an unbelievably successful stand-up. This sort of started around the same time mm. as me. It couldn't mm. get arrested at the, uh, the Edinburgh Festival. Was not a successful comic in the oh, UK. Really? And, I mean, his show is its phenomenally good. And I don't think he's changed one iota. No, he seems the same. He yeah. just found... Right stream for him because I remember he used to do shows with Andy Zaltzman every year, and him and Daniel and and uh, Alan Cochrane would all sort of hang together. And then somehow, just he found that niche of going. That's exactly. And I think it really gives heart to people that you go. They're brilliant. They need a. They need that show. They need that thing. He also put the time in the gym. John Oliver was on The Daily Show, getting paid zero money for seven eight years learning his craft. Yeah. You know that thing he does yeah. with the show where. There's no edits in mm. his show. You start, I'm recording for 29 minutes, it's done. If I fluff something, I fluff mm. something. Like, brilliant. And he's, he, he learnt it off John Stewart, does it now. He's phenomenal. Like, he's made it. Ricky Gervais has made it. Sasha Baron Cohen's made it. Rowan Atkinson's made it. There's, I mean, so many people behind the scenes as well within the comedy world as writers and
2: producers. I am hoping there will be a space where someone who looks like me can also be a part of that alumni as well. You need to
1: get... So the Comedy Cellar in New York and the Comedy Store in LA, and you need to give yourself a month mm. to just just be in those rooms. And I would wait. I wouldn't do it straight away when COVID ends because I think when COVID ends, you're going to enjoy being on stage and doing the new tour so much. Don't worry about it. Assu- when you get bored of the road, that like I feel like it's like a re-energizing thing. It's like being plugged into the mains. You go to the Comedy Cellar or the Comedy Store, it's like just a different world of oh my God, I feel so sort of alive and I love this so much. And let you stay at the Comedy Cellar like, it was like, always when I'm leaving about like one in the morning, it's like, oh, David Tell's just walked in. I'm going to stay another hour. and watch a bit of that. It's just like the the energy of all the thing about the drop-ins at the comedy store. I had that. I went
2: down to LA. I went to bed early because I had meetings the next day. My manager went to the comedy store in LA. Chappelle and Rock show up. Both my comedy fathers show up in the same place. On the we just what yeah. we're doing walk-ins. So, Jimmy,
1: thank you. Oh, my, my absolute pleasure, Howard. I'm sorry I didn't get to speak to you more. I was, I was, no
2: problem. I think definitely we'll do a part two. I think that. great yeah, we'd we'll love to have time, you I back, Jimmy,
0: and um, and look
2: after yourself in this
0: lockdown. Hey, it's um, it's, it's not ending oh, well, anytime. Uh, great, to see and congratulations on the new BBC
1: Three uh, listeners. If you've if you've got access, you should watch it. It's it's a it's a really great piece of work. Some just you know what, just some fucking funny lines in it.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah and that's all this funny stuff um, for anyone who's just uh, got working out of a coma Jimmy where can we find the stuff what you, what's coming up that we should check you out on
1: oh I mean don't worry about it watch famous watch, uh, watch on, uh, on BBC 3
2: <laughs> oh thank you how gracious of you thank you very very much
0: you've been listening to Dane Baptiste questions everything hosted by Dane Baptiste for more from Dane go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him on Twitter at danebaptweets or Instagram at DaneSnapteast. Our guest was Jimmy Carr. You can follow Jimmy on Twitter and Instagram at Jimmy Carr. The show is produced by me Howard Cohen. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Howard Cohen. The show is mixed and mastered by Audio Culture. You can follow Audio Culture on Instagram at WeAreAudioCulture. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at dbqepodcast. Thanks to Polly, Gelly and the Acast team for all their support. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything.